Let's talk about the Dawn of the Dead. Now, coming into this movie, I actually knew a bit more about it than I did The Night of the Living Dead. I knew that most of it took place in a mall. I knew it had a lot to do with commercialism and materialism, and I knew that the uh, the metaphors were a bit more heavy-handed, and I knew of the three, this is often the one I hear people talk about the most, and it has the most parodies and remakes of the three films, which is interesting that it is the middle film in the trilogy that is kind of the uh, most famous of the three. So coming into this film, I had pretty high expectations. And right off the bat, it is moving very quickly. I mean, the cuts are just absurdly quick. It is just cut, 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 cut. And I find that opening scene really intriguing. I think the idea of opening, and opening very quickly, by the way, the credits take what in the last film had a very slow build and it took a long time before anything happened. I mean, you have that long drive and it's very slow cuts, very long, very 60s. And then I will say, it seems to me, and I'm, I'm guessing the third one's this true this way too, is each film is very of the age and where film was at that moment where the one Neverland Dead, which was recent 68, has these very long takes, not a lot of cuts, very visually pleasing, uh, very involved in kind of this beautiful black and white cinematography. But with this one coming in, it is just cutting every single second. Even the tile sequence is like 10 seconds and then we're immediately in it. And what's interesting is it doesn't, unlike the other one, kind of build up to this moment. It just throws us right in the middle of it. Because it is sort of a sequel to the last film, Although, of course, we have one of, the, one of the main characters in this film, even though technically he's dead, which I, I think is, is an intriguing thing to do. I think it's mostly due, if not entirely due, merely because the director likes the actor and not for really a lot of other reasons. So I'll kind of skim over that. But the idea of opening on a news station, this kind of very hectic and really the other end of the spectrum for this sort of experience I think is really interesting. I think this whole film is kind of about the other side where the first film is about rural America, is about the people, the citizens. This film seems to be much more about the other end, the people who work in media, the the scientists, the doctors, the government. And it's an, a really intriguing opening, although it is very hectic and that music just kind of eats at you. And that's one of my big complaints of the film is where the first film is a very quiet film. There's not a lot of music in the film, and I think that has a lot to do with just kind of budget restraints, where this film, it clearly seems, to me at least, that they basically gave Jorge Romana Romero as much money as he wanted. It's one of those films where, uh, much like the Shoot the Piano player for Francois Truffaut, they basically came to the director and said, look, you've been very successful. Have as much money as you want. We don't care. Spend whatever you need to spend. Just make this movie. And I, I, I think the failure of this film in many ways, like so many uh, directors, is when they're given an unlimited budget, they often don't know what to do with it. And they often spend it in absurd ways because they feel like they have to spend it. They feel like they have this bigger budget. And so everything needs to be bigger. It needs to be better. 
And one of the ways that so often comes off is, is in the score. And instead of having, you know, this kind of a quiet score, like, like the first film, the score is very loud. It's very hectic. And a lot of times it, it feels, the music feels cheap. It feels almost like what you would hear in a mall. But on the other hand, that's kind of the point. It's supposed to be loud. It's supposed to be very obtrusive, where the first film is all about kind of pulling back and quietness and waiting. This film is constantly in your face. The cuts are so quick, and at times it feels absurd and frustrating, and a lot of times it almost feels like I'm watching television just because the cuts are so quick, and a lot of the angles are just kind of... It feels like lazy angles, and yet so much is going on at once, and it's just... A ton of things happening and the lighting for this film is a bit strange also because it's in color it seems to me that George A. Romero has yet to uh, master color which which you see so often uh, I think of it, Agnes Verda's film Cleo from 5 to 7 the opening scene is in color and you can tell that the scene is not lit very well because lighting and color at the time was a lot more challenging than it is today and uh, I think that gives this film a sort of cheap look to it in the way that the first film did not. Now the other interesting thing is that this film isn't under any sort of copyright law so I actually watched this film on YouTube which is pretty strange to find you know one of uh perhaps one of the most famous films of all time just on YouTube but I, that's how I did find it because I actually couldn't find any streaming service because I guess no one can own the rights to it so I found it here and isn't there a, a sort of irony to that the the film that that points fun to commercialism materialism maybe it's purposeful I, I really don't know is in itself free to the public right and anyone can watch it at no cost to them although I guess you might have to watch a couple commercials which I did which only sort of takes you out of the experience but the beginning of this film is so hectic and there's so much going on and, and right after you have that opening scene at the news station they go to a police station and I'll admit there are a lot of points in this film where I myself am kind of confused with what's going on, even though there's so much time in this two and a half hour film. It feels like um, if the last film I thought had too much exposition, this film has almost no exposition at all, and so at times can be confused what's happening, who these characters are, and it jumps to these police officers, which they kind of looked at in the first film, but they, they um, put a much harsher light at them. And you can see these police officers are just murdering people, not only zombies, but anyone. You know, they, they're breaking into houses, they're shooting people in the head. They're, this incredible amount of violence to these police officers. And I, I think it's looking at what the world would really look at if we had this sort of excuse, honestly, to, to kill people. I don't, I don't even think it's really about the zombies. And I think George A. Romero is suggesting that perhaps much like the characters in Edgar Allan, Post stories, we are always on the precipice of this doing this this great crime, this great evil, and the only thing stopping us are laws, is legislation. The moment these kind of fade away, we go back to our, our instinctual human self, and that instinctual human self, what is being suggested, is extremely horrible and violent. And perhaps this is merely the power given to these police officers they're allowed to do this they're allowed to break into homes they're allowed to, to shoot people in the face and this film is so much more violent than the last film there is a lot more blood there is a lot more gore flesh being eaten and i think that has a lot to do with the budget where in the first film you really only see that 
towards the very end of the film, and it is still, ugh, still makes you gag, but this film, it happens almost immediately, and it has that, um, the thing that, for some reason, they only did in, like, the 70s, where blood had this weird kind of texture and color to it, whatever they used for blood just didn't, to me, look like blood, but I, th I think it's really interesting that most of the films in the 70s kind of have, and, and perhaps a little bit in the late 60s, too, had this strange, uh, look for blood. And there's just blood everywhere and people are just running around and you're not really sure what's going on until you honestly meet the uh, our, our protagonist of the film, which is the same actor, uh, the black actor that was in the last film. And it's at that point that you really kind of get grasp of character. And I think that's part of the reason the beginning is so hectic is you don't know who anybody is. It doesn't um, give you an opportunity to introduce anybody. It does not follow the the normal rules of filmmaking. It doesn't say, you know, here's the world, here's the established world, here are these characters, and then we move on. Now, yes, the world has already been established in the last film, but these characters have, these are all different characters. Even though you have a same actor, that character is dead. So this is a new character, and, you're, and Romero doesn't really care about introducing them at this point. And so they go around killing all these people in this apartment complex, and we come to find out that the, uh, our black protagonist and uh, a character he calls Flyboy. Well, I think it is a, a police officer, I'm not really sure, and, and a woman who works for the news department all get together and they basically steal this helicopter. And there's kind of this tense scene when they're um, going to pick up two of the four. The, the woman and Flyboy are together, but they're going to pick up the other two. And there's this tense scene with quote-unquote cops and you can see that the cops have kind of lost all sense of law and legislation and are just kind of doing whatever they want and using their power for their own resources I suppose they're using they're certainly abusing their power to kind of get what they want and I'm sure there's a lot to be said about that and how that's so often the case even in the real world and George R. Romero makes that very clear that this isn't just in the world of zombies that this is things that are actually happening in our world and I think that's very although heavy-handed but uh much needed comment and so they get into the helicopter and they fly off and then they start seeing it's interesting I think they actually see because they actually fly over the house that would sit in living dead and they see people walking towards the house and it seems to me that all these things are happening simultaneously which means even though it's taking place 10 years later, and you know it's taking place 10 years later because you're using technology from the 70s. It's also happening at the same time, which is an interesting move to make because a lot has happened between 1968 and 1978. And instead of hiding those differences, instead of making this, um, you know, sort of a period piece of 10 years ago, kind of how Uncut Gems does, <laughs> where it actually takes place in in 2012 and not 2020 they suggest that they kind of happen at the same time which i think is an interesting way to go and to be honest as a viewer you buy into it pretty quick and you're out at least i wasn't really that bothered by it and they kind of uh at this point make the juxtaposition that is a lot of the film and the comparison between the first film which the first film is about rural america and the second film is about the big cities and they kind of poke fun at rural america and you know, this idea of them going out and killing zombies just for the fun of it and not really taking it seriously the way the people in the big city do. Of course, the, the bigger juxtaposition is 
what actually takes place in this film and the first film and how they react to the zombies and the way they go about fighting the zombies. And in the first film, it's about protecting yourself. It's about finding a place of residence. So staying safe. It's about community. It's about family. In the second film, it's about your offense being your defense. It's about going out and killing zombies. It's about right, doing what it takes to get what you want. It's about fighting for freedom rather than protecting yourself for freedom. And so our, our group of four, which are the four that will follow through the whole film, uh, land in rural America, they get gassed. There's kind of a little thing where our black protagonist kills two children. And you can see at that moment something that you really didn't see in the first film, which is the toll of murder. And I think it's something this film does really well, which is if you are constantly killing these once human beings, these things that look like human beings, it takes a real toll on you. And you can see it on his face as he murders these two children that it is tearing him apart and is tearing all four of them apart to a certain degree. And I will say one of the flaws of the first third of this film, if not a little bit more, is our only female character is pretty weak and pretty kind of useless, kind of just stands around and doesn't do much, which is not my favorite thing in the world. It kind of harkens back to some of my problems I had with Night of the Living Dead. But after that scene, they get back in the helicopter and they fly to the mall. Now, once they get to the mall, this is the part of the film I knew. And to be honest, up to that point, I've been kind of bored with the film. I think it's done a lot of interesting things. I think a lot of good things have happened. But honestly, looking back at the film, I think everything before they get to the mall is completely unnecessary. And for a film that's two and a half hours long, it cut out about at least 20 minutes of the film. I mean, maybe you keep the stuff at the news station, that stuff interesting, but everything at the police, you know, that the police do is uninteresting. That takes like 15 minutes. And again, this film is so weighed down by the music. I mean, I, I can't think of a single moment in this film where the music isn't playing. It's just so heavy with music. Then I, I, by this point, I'm, I'm, I'm quite irritated by the music. Like, I, I just want a single moment of silence or just a shot that's longer than, like, two seconds. I, I just want them to hold on anything for just a moment. And they haven't up to this point. And then we get to the mall, and this is the first time things sort of slow down. And it's the first time I really got into the film. And so they get to the mall, and they see uh, basically tons and tons of supplies. And so they, they, break, they break in from the top, and they kind of build a little, like, like a fort, like a station. And, and one of the things that George Aramaro does really well in this film, and I think does better than he did in the last film, is establish a sense of place. I mean, by the end of this film, I knew every single scene in the mall. In the mall. I knew you know where everything was compared to everything else. He does an incredible job of establishing where things are in the building and how they relate to other parts. And that whole opening scene where they go, or opening mall scene, where they go and uh, grab the initial supplies is absolutely fascinating and interesting and, and is a brilliant way to establish how these characters move about, how these characters you know, establish where they are and what's in relation to what and how they get from place to place. And also it establishes a lot of exposition for how these zombies work and these different tactics that they use. And it certainly helps that two of the four are former police officers, so they work together and they have 
have an incredible shot where uh, the the flyboy is at this point my least favorite character, and I really hope he dies because he is an irritating character. He is a useless character. He can't shoot for the life of him, and his whole uh, scene where he kind of gets out and and fumbles in the well, I would consider like the boiler room or just a place with a lot of pipes is entirely uninteresting. And at that moment when he's attacked by the zombie, part of me really hoped that he would die because he's just so irritating. But he survives and they all survive and they kind of, they get where they need to be and and they start using the air ducts. And at this point, you're probably an hour, 15 hour and 20 minutes of the film. And this is where the film really starts to become interesting to me because at this point they've established the mall they've established who these characters are they've made like these really interesting ways of of traveling through the mall especially through like the air ducts and they've started building kind of systems to move around and they've had a, a couple of interesting things where uh the two men that aren't flyboy when they first get into the department store which is like a pennies or something you know, he says, oh, I'm going to get a watch, I'm going to get this. And he's like, no, 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 we just need the essentials. And that's all they get. The first time they go shopping, per se, they just get the essentials. And then they, um, and then after, you know, capturing Flyboy, they come, I believe they come back to their original hideout. And at that point, they realize, they kind of have this argument of, hey, should we leave or should we stay? And in my opinion, I'm like, why the heck would you leave? There are so many supplies there. Why not stay there for the next six months, years, however long? And of course, they do end up decide staying, and this is where the film, again, I know I said this a couple of times, this is a film where I think the film could actually begin. Now, yes, you do need to establish uh, how the mall works, but a lot of that stuff is just, it's so, it takes so long. And for a two and a half hour film, it feels to me like the first hour, at least the first third of the film, at least, could easily be cut out, and I think this would be a much stronger film. And so they go back out. And this is where they decide, how they they uh, basically push out all the zombies out of the mall. Now what's interesting about this film that I, I don't know if I've ever seen for a film before is they don't explain the plan before they do the plan. And so when you see them doing these things, you're not really sure what's going on. Or at least I had no idea what was going on. Like I knew they were moving trucks. I didn't really understand why. They didn't really understand what was going on. And it's interesting, they, they pretty much explain it from the perspective of the woman who isn't given the details of this plan, she's kind of just there being badass. And this is the point where the female character actually does something, which is at this point, she has an incredible shot, which is awesome. And she probably al always had that. So why give him, give Flyboy the gun? And I don't really understand why Flyboy is, during this scene, the, uh, the two cops are getting trucks, basically, and they're going to park one in front of each doorway so basically the blocked entrance they've already got all the zombies out of of the mall or at least some of them out of the mall and their plan now is to block all the entryways and again this isn't explained to you you don't really figure it out until later in the film you just know that they, they need the trucks that's all you really know and while the two cops are getting the trucks flyboy is flying his helicopter over now i i assumed at this point that he had a sort of radio and he was contacting them but you find out when the white cop eventually gets bit that he doesn't actually have a radio or any way of contacting them which makes me wonder why the heck is he flying that helicopter 
Like, sure, he can see things, but if he can't say anything, if he can't do anything about it, how is he being helpful? How is that adding anything? And maybe they just wanted to give Flyboy a job because he's, up to this point, been pretty much useless. The only thing he's good at is flying a helicopter. And at that point, I realized that he's wasting a ton of gas doing that, which isn't great if they ever have to leave, which they will, spoilers, by the way, at the end of the film. So why he actually does that is entirely unclear. But I, I do really love that scene because you have very clear motivations. It's very obvious what everyone wants to do and, and the goals of getting those trucks. And you don't really know why they need the trucks, but you know that they need the trucks. And you can see between the white cop and the black cop how differently they react to the situation. You know, the white cop sees it in a very similar way to how the world people saw it. He's, he finds joy in killing these zombies, which they do actually call zombies in this film. He finds it to be a genuinely good time where the black cop takes it much more seriously and, you know, isn't so much a big fan of this, uh, how best to put it, but, but to say that it is, um, it's not a joyful experience to him. It's a very somber experience having to, you know, he, he's, he says multiple times in this film, you can't say, you can never say this was easy. You can never say this is a lightweight. You have to take this seriously. The moment you stop taking it seriously is the moment you get bit. And it's interesting, the moment that White Cop stops taking it seriously is the moment he ends up getting bit. And so they end up getting all the trucks there, they get inside, and now they have to get the rest of the zombies inside the mall, out, out of the mall. I love how they, they put the guy who's been, the White Cop, who's been bitten in the leg, and so he can't walk. They put him in like a wagon, basically, and they just give him a gun, and he's basically just like a... a a moving turret basically and he's going around shooting people as someone pushes him and they grab a car inside the mall they hotwire it and they they drive it out of the mall which is again another really fun scene just kind of driving this car you know running into zombies and again you you see just how much money this film has and so they drive in and they get all of these zombies out and when they finish this scene is to me who I would say the best part of the film. Everything from this to the end of the film, I think is the best part of the film. If you started the film here or just started a little bit before here, I would say if you started with the scene of the trucks, which doesn't happen until about an hour and a half into this film, maybe hour and 15 minutes, about halfway into the film, I think you would have made a much better film because at this point in the film, you find what's really interesting, which is, the guy Ben turns into a zombie, and so the black cop has to kill his best friend, which is a really intriguing moment and a powerful moment. And you see him slowly changing, and before they change, they have this incredible montage, which is just the epitome of late 70s, early 80s commercialism. And they're wearing these fancy coats, and they're putting on these fancy watches, and they're dressed to the nines. And, you know, everyone just looks absolutely their best, and it's entirely absurd and you, you can see them like looking you know walking around in their like fancy apartment and it's pointing out how when we have nothing we gravitate towards stuff because something that i was wondering a lot in this film is not surviving but once you can get past just surviving which these people have right when they we've passed the hierarchy of needs how do you find happiness and i think this is something this film really explores and and for these people they they try to find happiness in commercialism they try to find happiness in things they have the fanciest clothes they have the fanciest tvs they have 
the fanciest chairs and sofas, just the epitome of commercialism. And all of these people, zombies too, right? Wandering around the mall because they're remembering a former life, remembering something before them. I, I was thinking of the film Warm Bodies and how that film, right? You have janitors who are still janitors because when they were alive, they were janitors. And what I think that film failed to miss that this film really gets is it's not about a job. It's not about a career. It's about trying to be human. It's about some need to, to grasp the sun humanity, which is really what these zombies are doing. They come to the mall because they, they're, they're looking for what was lost and, and they found some sort of joy in this commercialism. And now our, our three protagonists left because the, the white cop was killed after being turned into a zombie. They, they shot him and he was dead. You see this sort of sadness reign over the other three. And even though they have all this fancy stuff, they are completely safe. They can do whatever they want. They have this entire mall to themselves, right? Just basically unlimited things. And yet there is this extraordinary amount of sadness. There is this one shot where uh, Flyboy and his girlfriend, wife, partner are in bed. And it's it's just on him. And it, zo it zooms and dollies out. And we see her. They're both naked, lying in bed. And you can just see an extreme amount of sadness in them. And it's showing that not only have things become unfulfilling, but even human contact itself is unfulfilling. When you are merely living to live, you're, right, you're surviving merely to survive. How can you find happiness? And I think that's what the rest of these three characters really struggle with. And this is part of the film that I'm so fascinated by. And there's this amazing scene where they're at the dinner table. And the TV is on, and the wife goes, and she stands at the dinner table and turns it off. And then as she sits down, the husband stands, walks over to the TV, and turns it back on. Now, not a single word is said in this 45-second interaction, and it's it's where George Romero is at his best. There's no quick edits. There's no loud music. It's like a lot of the third part of the film, quiet. And long takes where Night of the Living Dead really kind of lived. And it's just this wonderful moment. Because not a single thing is said. And yet so much is learned from this moment. You can see where their hopes lies. Where their dreams lies. You know, she is just trying to survive. She's just trying to live with the life. She's accepted the world as it is. Where he is still hoping for an existence that no longer is there. He is hoping that the broadcast will come back on. That they'll tell him something that he'll finally be safe again, and she has accepted that that world just isn't going to exist again. And all of this is happening while she is pregnant, which is another just really interesting part of this film, is, and they actually have a conversation about abortion, and of course, she isn't in that conversation, which at first I thought, oh, it's just sexist, but then they actually, you know, she comes in the conversation and talks about, you know, how, how am I not part of this decision? And I go, oh, shit, Romero is tackling a really complicated issue, especially for 1978, although, you know, just as complicated today, which is the rights of abortion, and not only abortion, but is it right to bring someone into a world like this? You know, is it morally correct to do that, or is it morally evil to bring them into this world? And it's something that the characters all struggle with. And then we get to the, one of the final scenes where the, the biker gang comes. 
And this is where we get back to some of the stuff that happened uh, earlier in the film, a lot of quick cuts, a lot of loud music. The music, although at this point, is, is better. It's almost like they got a different uh, musician to write the score for the latter half of the film, the latter third of the film. And it is just this giant gang of people. And it, it feels to me much uh, like a, a condemnation of counterculture because the, these people are kind of dressed in this sort of counterculture kind of way. And I think what George R. Romero is possibly suggesting is that so often counterculture uh, of the 60s and 70s really wasn't, or especially of the 70s and perhaps less of the 60s, wasn't actually about being against something. It was just about looking like you were against something. You know, these people act like, oh, they're cool and, you know, they're perfect. And you see them, the way they act around zombies is just violent and cruel and mean and they just don't care about anyone. And... You know, you can see the way they interact as opposed to the way our uh, now three protagonists interact in the world. It is absolutely different. And so they come in, they uh, pull back the trucks, they, right? They're, they're basically just taking everything they want. Kind of, uh, in many ways, they are replicating what our three protagonists did earlier in the film. And yet it feels more crass when they do it. And perhaps it's just due to positioning of one person as the bad guy and one person as the good guy. But I, I don't think it's a coincidence that um, Romero is, is painting the same people in a different light. And I think he's pointing out how often we as viewers will sign with one person rather than another, not because they're actually a better character or they're doing different things, but merely because as, as a filmmaker, he has decided, right? He has played God and said, these are the good guys and these are the bad guys. And at that moment, you have to play with your own morals and you have to play what it means to be a viewer in a film. And he forces us to kind of look at that. And then you have the interesting interaction between uh, the black cop and Flyboy, where the black cop's saying, hey, look, we got a copter. We should just, like, let's just get out of here, right? We're not going to fight off. There's three of us and, like, a hundred of them we're not going to win this fight. Let's just leave. And Flyboy's like, no, 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 no. I need to fight. This is my home. And of course, inevitably, that doesn't work so well for Flyboy. He ends up becoming a zombie. They do end up chasing the hundred or so people out just because there's so many zombies that they really just can't. The zombies overtake them. And so uh, the black cop goes back up to the white woman, back into like their hideout. And lo and behold, Flyboy, now a zombie, leads the other zombies to their hideout. And the black cop has to shoot Flyboy in the head. Now, although I, I did not like Flyboy at the beginning of the film, by this point, he had really grown on me as a character. He was a really interesting character. He was dealing with a lot of very real issues. And his death is genuinely tragic, not just for him, but for our two protagonists that are still alive. And kind of goes back to this idea that is being talked about throughout the film. A lot less watching a TV, but there still is some watching a TV. And whenever they watch the TV, there's the scientist with an eye patch who says, look, we have to be logical about this. And that's what he's saying throughout the whole film. We have to be logical. We have to be logical. They're not family members. They're not human. They're not us. You have to shoot them in the head. It doesn't matter who they are. You just have to kill them. And you can see in that moment, once again, the incredible toll when killing, and the black cop has now killed two of the only human beings he knows anymore. And, you know, the white woman's like, hey, we need to get on the chopper now. 
and he's like I don't want to go and you can see that it is not like this it's not like this silly heroic thing where he's like oh I'll fight him off you leave because that's just silly and preposterous it's much more he doesn't want to live you know he he's questioning if being alive is even worth it and he goes into his back room and he holds the gun to his head and there's a powerful moment where, where he thinks about shame himself and the zombies come in and they shoot the zombie and it's at that moment they realize they wants to live he's not really sure why he wants to live but he needs to live for something he has to live for something so he breaks through all of these zombies he climbs up the stairs he jumps up onto the chopper that's just right just about to fly away and then the two of them fly away and that's the end of the film and while coming into this film if I just watched the first third of the film, I probably want to have given this film like a 3 out of 10. I almost want to give it three different ratings, because the first part of the film is like a 3 out of 10. The second part of the film is like a 5 out of 10. And the third part of the film is like an 8 out of 10. But it is one film, unfortunately, and if I could do like a, I suppose, a fan edit, I, I think this could be a much better film. So I hate to give this film what I'm about to give it, because I think there are so many powerful moments in this film and so many great ideas in this film. But I'm going to have to give this film a 6 out of 10. And the reason I'm giving it a 6 out of 10 is because the music so often is just blaring and irritating and annoying. And because the beginning of the film just cuts so quickly and because it is so bloated at the beginning of the film, it almost makes it not worth watching. And when I was watching the beginning of the film, I was like, I, I don't want to watch the third part of this trilogy. It's just not worth it. But by the end of the film, I, I loved the end of the film so much that I I really struggled to give this film a rating. So all, all I can say is it's it's worth a watch. And if you could skip the first hour, you'd probably watch a better film. But films aren't made to watch that way, so I would never encourage someone to skip part of a film. So give it a watch, because it's, uh, it's a really interesting piece. Mm -hmm.